Welcome back to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today I'm starting off this episode with a simple question for our audience. Can you cite the name of a single woman author from the early modern Islamic world? If you can, please share with the Ottoman History Podcast community by leaving a comment in our blog or on our Facebook page. And if you can't, you're certainly not alone. But worry not, because by the end of this episode, you will be well acquainted with one such author, an early modern Ottoman poet, and in fact, we'll even get to hear some of her work in translation. We've got a return guest on the program today, Didem Havliolu. Dr. Havliolu, welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. Didem Havliolu is actually one of the first scholars to come on the podcast from outside our little Ottoman History Podcast circle with Emre Safa Gurkan in Istanbul. I think you came on way back in 2012. Isn't that right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And uh, many things have changed since then. First, your byline has changed. Didem Havliolu is a lecturer in the Department of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, and today we're discussing her book, which is now out, entitled Mihrihatun, Performance, Genderbending, and Subversion in Ottoman Intellectual History. An exciting title and an exciting conversation. Uh, I'd like to mention from the outset that this particular episode of Ottoman History Podcast is in a way sponsored by the University of Virginia Corcoran Department of History, who was kind enough to sponsor Dr. Havliola's visit to Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, to record this podcast. So, you know, many thanks to the department uh, and our chair, Karen Parshall, for helping set that up. Didem, before we get into the themes of your new book, which is out from Syracuse University Press, let's just briefly introduce the protagonist of the story, uh, Mihri Hatun. Uh, I know you've done a lot of work to try to figure out who Mihri Hatun was, uh, so just give us her quick bio, you know, what are the basics we need to know about this figure? Mihri Hatun was a woman poet from early modern Ottoman times. Uh, she was from uh, Amasya, from an eastern province, which was a cultural center at that time. Uh, what is significant about uh, Mihri Hatun is she collected her poetry into a divan and it survived in four manuscript copies. So, so other women poets, few women poets we know of, uh, we don't know much about their work. And so what immediately strikes us about Mihri Hatun, one is her success in navigating a male-dominated space, as we'll talk about. Uh, but before doing so, I'd like to ask maybe one of the more challenging questions when approaching the subject of women within Islamic intellectual history and within literature and poetry in particular, because one would think that women were very involved in the arts, and there's plenty of scholarship that says that women were involved in the life of the Ottoman court, for example. Not just there, but as the work of Leslie Pierce shows, quite powerful. So when approaching Mehri Hatun, I mean, I wanna, what I want to ask you is, is it that she was quite exceptional and that she was a prolific woman author? Or is it that she is quite exceptional in that for some twist of fate, her poetry survived, whereas other women were erased? Or is it simply that the historiography of the Ottoman Empire, which was being formulated by men during Ottoman times and continued to be dominated by male-centered questions and perspectives, uh, has sort of effaced figures like Mehri Hatun from the historiography. I think all of them, everything you said, she's exceptional, as uh, I just mentioned. Uh, her work 
survived. So there is an evidence of her existence in the intellectual world. So that is very significant. It is a very rare text from an early modern times, uh, not only uh, for the Ottoman history, but also the Middle East and the European history uh, of women's writing. Uh, so this is a, you know, this is an interesting story. But she is also exceptional. I actually called her a lucky star mm. in my book. And I think she was aware of that too. She was in, a, in the right time and the right place. So there, there were things to come together for her survival in history so that we know of her. And uh, so this can be her background, privileged background. Um, she comes from this really um, privileged family. She is in this, uh, is a vibrant city, uh, which is very important for uh, an, any uh, intellectual and artist to become one in their career is a, is a very important you know, component, uh, the city and the patronage. Uh, so she was, she was lucky that she had uh, very strong patrons. She studied with the most prominent people at the time. So, so she was lucky, but at the same time, this shows us that it is possible for a woman to be part of the intellectual circles, to produce poetry, to get into debate, uh, poetic debates with, with her male f- colleagues. She is a very lucky incident for, for us too, uh, so that she, she, she um, allows us a glimpse of women's lives mm. at that time. Otherwise, you know, we are uh, speculating about women's mm-hmm. life. Now, uh, uh, you know, what I try to do in my book, I'm talking about a text. And I focus on that text and her, like her words, which th- this is uh, probably what makes her exceptional in women's uh, history, mm-hmm. uh, in Ottoman women's history. And I think once our listeners who are out there researching early modern Ottoman poetry hear some of these lines from Mehri Hatun's poetry, they're going to be out there trying to dig up their own Mehri Hatun. And so maybe for the purposes of laying down that roadmap of how one might find her, let's develop more that context of the social networks she navigates from 15th century Amasya to kind of create this statue for herself such that she would be renowned and remembered among the many illustrious male poets of that, the classical Ottoman period. I think uh, one important uh, part of that, you know, she she was part of this network of uh, intellectuals and scholars uh, around the Prince's Palace in Amasya. So Bayezid II was serving as the governor of the province Amasya. From her poetry, we can trace that she was part of those circles, and also other prominent figures. So her friendships. Her intellectual exchange uh, happened um, through these people. So these people are part of her life. So when we look at the matter this way, uh, we see a network of people and a network of intellectuals which make each other's career, in a, in, so to speak. And so, so what I also try to do in the book, I'm telling her story, yes, but I'm also talking about um, people around her. Uh, which is very impro- important in her making as a woman poet. Uh, so, so I think um, it wouldn't be wrong to uh, approach it as like this is like a collective intellectual biography of a certain time and place, uh, focusing on a woman. I think here we should mention 
uh, as we get into the conversation of what it was like for Mihri Hatun to be a woman in this male-dominated space, that she was from a, a prominent family uh, in Ottoman society. No, she wasn't married with a family. She, she had lived this uh, single uh, existence that allowed her to nurture her career. Uh, and indeed, some of her closest re- relationships uh, were with other poets. You talk about the figure of Hatemi uh, in your work. Mm-hmm, that's right. Hatemi uh, is his pen name. He is Mu'ezade Abdurrahman Çelebi. He's a very prominent figure in early modern intellectual history. And unfortunately, we don't have, uh, none of his work survived. Oh, wow. Um, but we know of him in uh, second secondary sources. Uh, he was a, a very prolific writer. He was a bibliophile. He had this extensive library. So he happened to be he to be to be from Amasya, from the same circles of Mihri, and actually Teskira writers, the the biographical dictionaries, mentioned that uh, they were friends. They actually uh, worked together. They specifically say uh, that Mihri studied love with him, hmm. which means studying love, um, you know, studying poetry mm-hmm. and studying um, this intellectual discourse that we talk about. And there are poems uh, that she dedicated to him. And do you think they were in love? Do you think they had a romantic <laughs> relationship as we understand it today? I mean, I, I think it, they, the, the biographers, especially Ashik Cherebi, who's very playful and entertaining in his uh, telling her, her story, uh, he plays with this idea because it's entertaining. It is gossip. It is, you know, uh, of course we don't know. Probably Ashik Chebri didn't also know, even though he was the grandson of Mayed Sade, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, uh, so, so whatever we know about Mihri is actually uh, what Ashik heard from Mayed Sade. Who knows? Maybe it is possible. There's lots of gossip about her love affairs uh, in biographical dictionaries, and I don't think it is random. I think they do it on purpose uh, to trigger some curiosity about mm-hmm. her, uh, but somehow um, introducing this idea that love can be platonic, love can be friendship, they, there can be um, love between colleagues. So, so there's certain intimacy between mm-hmm. these people that they share a culture, they share uh, a, a language, and, and they are part of this very uh, significant and intimate group. I think that's what they mean when they say, they are in love with each other because I don't know, of course, you know, their right. personal meanings. Uh, but I think you can trace what you can trace uh, from poetry is who cares about who? I mean, so, for instance, she picks some people to get into poetic debate and mm-hmm. poetic dialogue. Yeah. I don't think this is co- a coincidence. Mm-hmm. I think she's like consciously making some de- decision to make connections with certain people, and Hatemi is one of them. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, you mentioned Ashik Chelebi, the the biographer who's who's written many biographies of, of prominent figures in Ottoman history. A lot of what we know about people may come solely from Ashik Chelebi in some in the cases of some individuals. Uh, and you talk, you mentioned, you've alluded to this like salacious provocative role that Mihri Hatun and her celebrity plays within the constellation of Ottoman literary figures in Ashik Chilabi's work. When I heard you speak on it, you mentioned uh, this passage where he describes uh, Mihri Hatun's love and relationship to love poetry. 
there's this very memorable line where he says, a lioness is still a lion, isn't she? So could you maybe share with us the translation of that passage? Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Sure. I mean, I think this is a very interesting uh, passage. And I had, uh, when I first read it with my Walter Ojam, Walter Andrews, uh, years ago, we, we worked uh, on this for a long time to to to to unravel the meaning because it is it is confusing uh, when you first look at it. So Ashik introduces Mihri uh, in four pages uh, in his about four pages in his Meshaira Shuara. Um, so this is co- you know compared to other entries, it's a very lengthy uh, entry. So this is a passage from that um, entry. He says. She made her love poems virginal meanings as her dowry and brought them with her to the nuptial chamber. In her beautiful love poems, she is a virgin girl like Joseph. While male poets uh, were craving, as a woman, she made them, meaning virginal meanings, cheap. Even though there are some indecent words in her poems, they are like the menstrual fluid of men. Influenced by this, some deficient meanings are seen in her poetry. However, they are considered to be from the class that needs guidance. And they, her poems, are not low quality, but average. Her writing is like a woman's embroidery. Her composition is promiscuous. As they say, a male lion is a lion, but isn't a lion is a lion too. She was not free of beloved chasing. Um, Yes, I mean, this is is a very interesting passage. There are some things that are... Lost in translation at first, right? For example, the mention of the menstrual fluid of men. Mm-hmm. What does that refer to? What is that metaphor? Mm-hmm. The menstrual fluid of men. Right. He definitely uh, mixes and matches this like gender, uh, you know, values and gender qualities with you know male and female figures, um, and and because he's talking about a woman here, um, he is bringing up these uh, biological natural bodily reality uh, and and then mixing them with uh, the unexpected gender. Mm-hmm. Um, I think menstrual fluid of men is um, is actually the, the indecent words that they are using <laughs> for poetry. Right. So because, you know, poetry is a business of love and yeah. one uh, if one engages in this business, they have to engage in this language, uh, which can be considered uh, indecent right. from outsiders and which can be seen as a menstrual fluid. Right. It's nasty, but it's also natural. Is it is natural for this business, yeah, exactly. right? So I think he does this uh, when he's introducing a woman on purpose. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's uh, drawing attention, the fluidity between genders and, mm-hmm. and the values of the genders um, and, and how it can be challenged, actually. So um, so it is a pr- pretty interesting uh, way of introducing her. Yeah, I mean, to the modern ears at first it comes off as uh, like sexist or kind of objectifying her but do you see it a little bit differently are you saying he's actually playing with these images in order to normalize her or i think he is uh trying to use these um very well known biological facts in subversive ways because he says menstrual fluid of man there's no such a thing right or he compares his her virginity to Joseph's 
virginity instead of uh, another woman, right? So we don't expect a man to be a virgin. At least it's not a quality we're looking for. Uh, but but you know if probably Ashik is predicting his audience's questions about a woman if she is a poet is she a respectable woman right. so a respectable woman should be either virgin or married so mm-hmm. because she's not married she should be virgin uh, so he is trying to introduce her as a good woman who happened to engage in poetry also it is entertaining right. you see like you know it is not boring to read this even today i mean we had the the lioness is still a lion quote, which, you know, I guess refers to, you know, women have passions too, right? But then he even goes further to say that uh, I believe the phrasing was that she was able to um, write these virginal um, poems for the beloved, that it was very easy for her. She made them cheap is how you have it in the translation, right? Yes, um, I think he's, um, he. it's important to mention what, what words he's using here. He's using... Um, First of all, virginal meanings is the, you know, is a very important concept uh, here. Bikrimana, meaning um, creating new meanings or uh, being creative. So it is something desired in a poet. So it is very easy for her, he says, uh, that to to create bikrimana, to to have new meanings. Uh, meanwhile, some men are craving for those meanings. And the word he uses for that is ashirmek. Mm. Um, ashirmek is still used today um, specifically for pregnant women when they crave for strange things. So now again, he's using this word specifically we expect uh, for women, yeah. he's using for men. He's actually a huge fan of Mehrihat. I think so. Yeah. I, I, I believe actually, after studying on these teskiras for a while, his influence in her survival in history is huge. Of course, he writes after 50 years after her lifetime, probably hearing the stories about Mihri from his grandfather, and he creates this, he, the, this woman, the image of woman in his work, which is copied over and over again throughout centuries until today. So can you imagine that he's like, he's creating this um, this persona, mm-hmm. uh, the woman intellectual, the new member of the of their circles. Um, and then, you know, and, and then she becomes celebrity. Yeah. Right? Uh, so, and we'll talk more about that celebrity that, you know, Mehri Hatun wasn't just a woman, an exception in that regard, to be a prominent poet and be a woman, uh, but actually, Uh, So much about her work and about her celebrity was about the fact she was a woman. So we'll have a quick uh, music break and then we'll come back in and talk more about that. We're talking to Didem Havliolu about her new book on the Ottoman poet Mehri Hatun. Stay tuned. Hello. 
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm here with Dr. Didem Havleolo. Uh, we're talking about her new book out from Syracuse University Press entitled Mehri Hatun, Performance, Gender Bending, and Subversion in Ottoman Intellectual History. Didem, we've already learned a little bit about the figure of Mehri Hatun, an early modern Ottoman woman poet, very exceptional in some regard, and how she navigated various social networks um, in 15th century Amasya to rise and gain some stature within the world of um, Ottoman literature. Uh, and as we've already learned from looking at the biographer Ashik Chelebi, the fact that she was a woman was not only striking for the historian today looking back, but was also striking for people in her time. Um, and so maybe now we'll talk about one of the themes you, you, you raise, one of the conceptual um, ideas you're working with in the book, that is gender bending. Um, and for those who have studied Ottoman poetry or even early modern poetry in the Islamic world and Europe as well, um, gender bending will already be a familiar theme in some regard. People will know perhaps the study of Walter Andrews and Mehmet Kalpakla entitled The Age of the Beloveds, um, which dealt with you know homoerotic facets of Ottoman poetry, the homosocial nature of uh, the arena of Ottoman literature, uh, and for our listeners, we can cite a interview we've done with Salim Kuru uh, on the subject of the role of idealized male beauty um, in Ottoman literature. So all this is to say that we have a lot of Ottoman poetry about men writing really interesting stuff about other men that may even be described as being not so masculine, right? You know, how does Mehri Hatun fit into this very male and masculinity boys club, let's say, mm. of, of Ottoman literature? Right. Yeah. So this was um, this was the main concern when I started reading her poetry, because um, um, thanks to uh, Walter Andrews, Mehmet Kalpakar's word and work, uh, and Selim Cruz's uh, works, they laid the ground, actually, talking about um, uh, the, the nature of this discourse of love and uh, how the, the ideal of beauty uh, is ambiguous, genderless, or in some cases, male, right? So clearly male. When they um, mention the beloved's name, for instance, Selim talks about that. So, so when I started working on Mihri, uh, my issue was not the, you know, who is the beloved? My problem was with the speaker. So what happens when a woman speaks? What happens when a woman expresses her desire? Because this discourse of love is established and constructed for the male actors only it looks like right so at least it, by the numbers like you know the the majority of poets are male uh and we are talking about the majlis culture most of the audience is male also so what happens when a woman enters into this world so this is the question i think uh at least what i uh, propose in my book because she has this marginal position um, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. This is not a negative thing. She uses this marginal position in a very productive way for herself. Um, she, do she doesn't claim to be a man. She doesn't pretend to be a man. She doesn't take a pen name, male pen name, for instance, which is very common among women writers. Uh, she, you know, she, it is clear that she's a woman. 
uh, and she expresses her desire for the male beloved still. And um, so this is suddenly like it's not the homosocial, it's not the homoerotic. You know, this is this is a rupture, actually, right? So we we, we think about if we in the whole aesthetic system changes, right? Right? It is possible to do this because I think these roles are uh, not fixed and also not really related to the biology so much, but more more than uh, perform performance. Right. Um, and so so she performs to be a poet. Right. So she uses this discourse and she sometimes claims these male virtues such as courage mm -hmm. and and bravery. And and because she pursues love, she needs to. She even says, like, I came to the battlefield. Let's fight. Right. Let's fight for the beloved. Um, I am much better than uh, those rivals. Right. So I'm going to uh, prove myself. So so I think it's a very it's one of the overarching themes in her work. She tries to prove herself as a poet and she does and she she, she uh, succeeds mm -hmm. uh, so that she survives. Mm -hmm. So this is, I think this is the gender bending part yeah. which automatically happens as soon as she speaks. Right. Uh, the subject position she holds as a woman and enters into this, um, into this discourse which is like there before her. She, all he, she has to do is to speak. Right. And so she does, and uh, and it is accepted, which is also very interesting. Yeah, and I mean, what you're saying there, kind of, for those who don't have the background in early modern Ottoman poetry, and it, it's hard to wrap our heads around because there's been so much historical debate about what the how the content of the poetry actually relates to people's sexuality right. in practice. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have men writing poems about young men, boyish, boyish men as the idealized beauty, and there's a huge debate as to whether or not that actually reflected their their sexual desires and practice or whether this is a uh, aesthetic. But the point is that when a woman enters this arena, it becomes sexualized because that's because that's she still has a the gender heteronormative sexuality mm. that's mm -hmm. taking place in society. You can't uh, really ignore that that easily. I mean, for mm -hmm. our American audience, like they might think of. Uh, bodies uh, in the sports world, right? Mm -hmm. Like football, you know, there's a lot of talk about men's bodies when you watch a football game, like fixation on like their features and everything. But imagine if suddenly half the players were women and half the commentators were women and it wasn't this male-dominated space, just how different all that conversation would sound in our society. It, it is significant to, uh, to, to realize that um, she is not depicting a female beauty she is speaking as a female i think this is very important because this way she is not proposing a new aesthetic right so it, she's still you right. know idealizing the male beauty um so i think it is very significant uh from her part I, if if she did this like consciously to be included probably it w it worked right so mm -hmm. because because it is so rare to idealize female beauty. There's there's very few, um, especially around this time, mm -hmm. very few poems idealizing female beauty. It is not considered beautiful. Um, so so I think, you know, she doesn't do that. And and, and so so she survived mm -hmm. in this in this whole uh, discourse. And what about the converse argument, you know, that, that female beauty is rarely talked about 
But some would say that's not because females weren't considered beautiful or, the, or a woman's body was not considered beautiful, uh, but that describing it would be so salacious, so scandalous, um, just so over, overly sexualized that it would simply be inappropriate. It, it would be uh, vulgar or even perhaps um, taboo and forbidden to, to utter such descriptions within the realm of poetry. Is that also in play? Uh, like, you know, sort of thinking about this whole idea of who was the ideal beloved and how they're described, like the imagery used, is that a factor as well? I think it's also for the fem uh, male beloveds, they are not described f in full detail. So when, when you look at this po kind of poetry, how they are described, there's no detail at all. Um, they, are, they, it, they are this abstract image, uh, which represents beauty. Right, so they have this moon face. Mm -hmm. They have this like um, very small mouths, very like swaying bodies that can belong to anybody. So it is very abstract, and I think this is very Islamic. Is you know, it's very you know, it longs the lines with Islamic aesthetics, mm -hmm. right? So um, the abstraction of beauty, which is um, you know, in we can find yeah. in other arts too. Um, so, um, so of course they don't do that for women also. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, it would be vulgar. This doesn't mean that there there were pornographic oh, uh, sure. work uh, describing body and you know and, and the function of the body. Uh, but but we are talking about this. You know this. Uh, the it's it's hardly courtly to talk about in, in at graphic detail. At least not arts, in or. in this case, right? right? So um, even court has different uh, mm. various courts because uh -huh. it really okay. depends, you know, the host, the place, um, because it's, these are like really intimate meetings. Um, mm -hmm. It can, it really depends what uh, the, the, uh, what the host wants to do. So, uh -huh. so they can commission a pornographic work and uh, that should be fine. Uh, but we're mostly talking about more, um, you know, uh, poetry in more circulation in these uh, elite groups. Yeah. So the particular, yeah, I mean, we should note that for our listeners. Uh, and if they want to hear a very different representation of the issue of bodies and sexuality in Ottoman literature, they should check out our podcast with Irving Jimmyel Schick. It's entitled The Ottoman Erotic. It won't be hard to find it on our website. Uh, again, dealing exactly with this, um, you know, the body literature, the, the graphic descriptions and the, and the rich vocabulary and, and ways of describing human body and sex that uh, is actually quite alien to some of the other scholarship on literature mm -hmm. in the Ottoman Empire, which, as we've been saying, um, especially with regard to certain court practices, is, is actually relatively, you know, it's love without a lot of sex. It's very metaphorical. Mm -hmm. It's very abstract. And, mm -hmm. and as you said, Mihri Hatun, just by being a woman, kind of disrupts that a little, even if it's in a somewhat tame way. But as we're going to find out in the final section of our conversation today, it was about more than just being a woman in the lyrics of Mihri Hatun's poetry. We can see what she was trying to do. Didem isn't just reading between the lines. Mihri Hatun has left us clues about how she feels about uh, being a woman uh, in the world of Ottoman poetry. So stay with us after another short music break, and we'll be back with Didem Havliolu, who will be doing some readings of Mihri Hatun's poetry in Ottoman Turkish and English.
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Didem Havleolu. We're talking about her new book out from Syracuse University Press entitled Mihri Hatun, Performance, Genderbending, and Subversion in Ottoman Intellectual History. If you'd like to find that book or learn more about our topic, make sure to visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We've got a link uh, and a bibliography for today's conversation. Didem, we've been talking about how Mehri Hatun wasn't just an Ottoman woman poet, but that much of what she was doing, much of what she was introducing into the Ottoman literature, and much of the subversiveness of her work came from the very fact that she was a woman, and very consciously so uh, in her work and in her social life. So let's finish up this interview by doing a couple of readings of Mehri Hatun's poetry, which uh, even in the English translation, our listeners will definitely get a sense of who she was. But uh, we're also going to do something that you won't find in the book, which is published in English, which is have the Ottoman original Mm -hmm. uh, as well. So tell us about the first selection uh, we're going to be hearing very briefly, and then let's get right into it. Uh, First of all, they can find the original in transcription in uh, Ottoman Archive Project. Maybe we can have a link. So the first poem I'd like to read um, is, um, is, is, is the one that reflects uh, the intellectual friendships she had and the love affairs and the gossips in these biographical dictionaries um, and also um, what happens when a, a woman expresses her desire um, in, in poetry. So here it goes. First, the Ottoman. Geldi çüngar ragazerler bize olacağın andan, İsa veş irdi nefes ben mürde cisme candan. Oldu şiirin lalünün ferhadı dila şüftesi, geçişser canu cihandan, geçmeyiser andan. Fırkatünden kâmetüm halka itmişem hatem gibi, başıma sengi melamet almışam mercandan. Ruhların güzdarına erdükçe cana bağdı sup, alemi hoşbuğu tutar olsun bülü reyhandan. Göreli kuyunda canım sen güzeller şahını, kalmadı rızvana meylüm geçmişem gılmandan. Şüphesiz nadan o epter cilfi bir idraktır, ehli şiir içre seni ye görmeyen Selman'dan. Sen yalandan hatemi aşık geçersin Mihri'ye, sünme vallahi seni Mihri ye sever oğlandan. All right, very nice. Enjoyed that. Now let's uh, for the... English-only audience out there, we've got a translation which will elucidate some of the images uh, that we just heard in the Ottoman Turkish a little bit further as well. As brilliant lyrics reached us from that beloved, Jesus, like a breath of life, reached my dead body. Your sweet lips, Farhat, became crazy at heart for it. He would give up life and this world, but never give it up. Parted from you, I bent my body like a signet. I was hit on the head by a stone of reproach made of coral. When the morning breeze comes to those, to the rosebed of your cheek, beloved, the whole world smells sweetly of hyacinth and sweet herbs. My dear, since I saw you, O oh Lord of beauties, in your street, I have had no desire for paradise and have given up beautiful boys. He's ignorant, vastly clownish and ignorant. Who doesn't consider you superior to Salman Savagi? Oh, Hatimi, you lied to Mihri when you played the lover. By God, she loves you better than any boy. All right, thank you for that reading. 
Let's uh, pick that apart a little, and we'll start with, I think, from the bottom. Um, the last line of the poem, Mihri, Mihri says that she loves Hatami more than any boy. What does she mean by that? Right. Uh, we talked a little bit about the ideal beauty, the ideal representation of beloved in uh, in poetry. Um, so first of all, Hatemi is Mehzadeh uh, Abdurrahman Chelibi. Hatemi is his pen name. He apparently also produced uh, composed uh, poetry. And from the this this poem, from the first couplet, we understand he sent some lyrics to uh to to Mihri but it didn't survive we mm -hmm. don't know he she just mentions so that we know um again Gazelle is a maybe I should I should have said earlier Gazelle is a love song um and it is uh basically um yearning of the uh, lover to unite with the beloved right so it is basically uh that mm -hmm. uh but this one is uh, specifically uh dedicated to Hatemi mm -hmm. um and and she as you said she is clearly she uh says uh, she loves him better than any boy could and so as we talked about before mm -hmm. the beloved is normally a boy. A boy, and she says that clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, a boy is an abstract uh, beauty, right? Mm -hmm. Or a, a, a, an idea mm -hmm. of a beauty. Um, she, I think, presents herself as a real beloved here. Mm. Real meaning, you know, uh, is, is a real time, real life uh, mm -hmm. beloved. Because they were friends, we know, uh, and there's this gossip about uh, this uh, love relationship between mm -hmm. them. Who knows? Maybe they were uh, real lover lovers. Uh, but she is presenting herself as an alternative, a better alternative right. to the boy, right? So, um, so she's pretty much showing us she's very aware of her gender in this whole world right. Right? she says I'm, I'm way better than a boy and yes. she also says that she's given up young boys this poem is not written for a young boy it's written for Hatami, who's an adult man adult man exactly so um right i think she's very much conscious about these um the, the construction of gender in this discourse and uh, she doesn't shy, shy away from challenging it and also, uh, this poem shows us and how uh, poetry is a reflection of real life and uh, reflects this uh, relationship between them, either as colleagues or friends. Um, but basically, uh, the poem uh, reflects that relationship. Right. And um, so, so this is one of the um, arguments or discussions I have in this book. Uh, you know, can poetry reflect real life? And this is a good example, actually, it can. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like she's daring him to make it real. And make our it real. listeners will have to read the book to find out more about what Didem Havliolo thinks about this. But we do want to do one more poetry reading before we wrap up this conversation. So the second one is also, uh, I picked this one again uh, as a follow-up uh, to the first one because it is also, uh, it also this one also shows uh, poetry can reflect real life. Mm. Uh, it really matters how we read it. Okay, first to Ottoman Turkish. Ol mübarek zatuna her demde sıhhat yaraşır. Ol mutahhar cismine her anda rahat yaraşır. Dar rifatte safa ve zevk ile leylü nehar sahne sıhhatte güzel hanımla sohbet yaraşır. Ol vücudu nazeninden ırak olsun elem. Düşmenine haneyi gam içre mihnet, mihnet yaraşır. 
Teb niçin tutar seni, tutsun rakibi ka- kafiri? Sana sıhhatler, aduğuna rencü zillet yaraşır. Tiyi kah ile aduğunun başını kat itmeye, zatuna cüret ve hem bazına kuvvet yaraşır. Ney gibi inleyen her dem hasud olsun müdam, Çengü kanun ile her dem sana işret yaraşır. Hak bağışlasın ilahi seni ol validene, kim onun bir tanesisin sana rifat yaraşır. Hamdillah kim mülakat oldu mihri daiye, dir görenler zatına erkanı devlet yaraşır. All right, and now here's the English. At every moment, good health is fitting for you, the blessed one. At every instant, comfort is fitting for that pure body of yours. In a sublime dwelling, night and day, with joy and pleasure, converse with that, with a lovely woman in the health-fitting courtyard. May pain be distant from that delicate body of yours, for your enemy, torment in the house of grief is fitting. Why does a fever grip you? Let it grip your infidel rival. For you, good health, for your enemy, pain and degradation are fitting. In order to cut off the head of your enemy with the sword of wrath, for your boldness and for your arm, strength are fitting. May the one who envies you ever wail like the reed flute, for you, Merrymaking with harp and dulcimer is fitting. May God spare your life for your mother, whose one and only you are, for you, eminence is fitting. Praise God, Mihri, your well-wisher, could visit you. Those who see you say, to you, such pillars of prosperity are fitting. Okay, so what's the story behind that? So, what is significant about this uh, poem There is a mention of uh, the beloved's mother in the picture. On the seventh couplet, she says, may God spare your life for your mother, who is one and only you are. So um, this is a very unusual depiction of the beloved. First of all, he is sick. Um, so he's, she's probably paying a, a visit to get well wish mm-hmm. card kind of uh, poem, I think. Um, and, and there is, if we can imagine the, um, the background of the poem and how it's performed in a setting, there must be the mother in the picture too. So, um, so I think uh, this poem reflects how poetry is performed in Uh, majorly setting and there are people around and when probably a woman poet does that uh, she pays attention to the woman in the picture as mm. well so so you know you know why she mentions the valide of the the mother of the beloved here um is is a personal choice i think is or the way she sees the world the way the way her world is at this time this can be very well a female court right And maybe the beloved is a boy and is, you know, a sick child and she visits. It can be the prince himself when he's sick, she's visiting. So I'm, of course, building up uh, this uh, story behind this poem. But it is possible that this poem is recited in that way. And again, uh, it is very unusual to depict the, the, the, the perfect beloved as a sick and weak person hmm. right and or who also has this you know the childlike relationship or 
as a child to the, to a mother mm-hmm. after all so yeah. this is also a a new angle uh, a, a new perspective to like to look at the the perfect beloved who, who is not very perfect in this in this poem Right, and so this is a this is another one of the selections from Mihri Hatun's poetry that survived. That not only place her in sort of a, a social context, right, trying to imagine for whom the poetry was written, both in terms of who it's dedicated to, but also who's listening, um, in terms of possibly men and women being there, and and uh, um, what her unique position as a woman in this social space uh, brought to her work. So on that note, we'll have to conclude our interview with Didem Havliolu about her new book, about Mehri Hatun. Didem, it was so great to have you back on the podcast. It was, a, it was my pleasure. It was great. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I really like the book. Uh, I especially want to alert our listeners that Dr. Havliolu's new book contains over 20 pages of translated poetry uh, of Mehri Hatun. So in addition to doing all that work, reconstructing the biography of this um really ignored figure in Ottoman literature and all of that great analysis about gender bending and subversion. We've also just got a lot of good primary source material that make great uh, reading for those who want to get a glimpse into an Ottoman woman's writing uh, from the early modern period and or perhaps use them with students in the classroom. So it's an interesting book, Mehri Hatun, Performance, Gender Bending and Subversion in Ottoman Intellectual History from Syracuse University Press. Samer Mahdi Ali says uh, the book shows how Mehri Hatun used her marginal position to hack an insular, putatively hypermasculine poetic discourse to become a central figure in the canon, using primarily wit and erotic humor. Irvin Jamil Shik, a friend of the podcast, says Mehri Hatun was a talented and prolific poet a woman in a male-dominated occupation who nevertheless managed to find her own unique voice through humor, satire, and gender bending. A fascinating account. And Walter Andrews, already mentioned in the podcast, got a shout-out, says this is a path-breaking book. So high praise from some uh, good scholars in the field. I invite all of our listeners to check out the book about Mehri Hatun. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll get a link. You'll find some other material for the bibliography, as we always have. And you'll find a lot of other great episodes uh, dealing with the themes of women, gender, and sex in Ottoman history, which um, is now a very important subset of our offerings. Didem Havliola was one of our first guests on that topic way back in 2012, so many thanks to Didem once again for coming on. Thanks to the University of Virginia Corcoran Department of History for sponsoring DDEM's visits today and making this recording possible. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, invite you to join us on Facebook and be in touch and comment and converse with your other Ottoman History Podcast community members. Uh, that's all for this episode. Join us next time. <laughs>